Good morning. It's so good to be back with you again. Our Good Friday and Easter services last week were great uh, as we joined together to praise the name of Jesus as we celebrated his resurrection. We had some new faces last week, and I don't know if any of those folks are back with us this morning or maybe online, but welcome to all of you. It's good to have you in the house of the Lord this morning. It's raining instead of snowing, so I'm excited about that. If it does snow in the coming weeks, you can call me and blame me because I put my shovels up into the rafters of my garage, and I know that's the sure sign that there's going to be at least one more snow, right? So once you put those away, it's it. Our family had the opportunity to take a 1,200-mile Midwest tour over the last couple of days. We got to see most of our kids, um, so that was really good and taking a wagon ride around the block with Liam uh, as a grandpa was just the highlight of the trip. So I really enjoyed being able to do that. I hope some of you got to see family um, this past week or two as well. I know things are slowly but surely opening up. And so as we get closer to summer, uh, we look forward to times where we can fellowship more closely. We can fill in some of these empty pews um, and so we're, we're looking forward to those days, but we continue to be safe. We continue to um, keep our distance. If you are here with us and you're looking around the room, there's some people with masks on, there's some with masks off. If you need to keep your mask on, please do. We have the exhaust fan blowing or ex- extracting air while we're singing. And when you're walking around the building and you're closer to people, please keep your masks on. If you feel like you're six feet apart and you're healthy enough to take your mask off at those times, then that's up to you to do that. If you came in, and those of you watching online too, everybody signs in, they have their temperature taken, so we're doing all these precautions so that we can be together, so that we can sing together, and so we can lift up the name of Jesus and praise Him. And I'm just thankful that we're able to do that this morning. All the way back in March, we began a series in the Minor Prophet book of Hosea. And it's called Relentless Love. God told this prophet to marry a whore, a woman who was known for being unfaithful, for being a woman who slept around. And God did that because he wanted Israel to see what it was like for them to chase after idols, for them to leave their first love, to walk away from the God, the Father that we just sang about, who loved them so much. And that they would just leave him and go chasing after false idols who could do absolutely nothing for them. So Hosea's life was a picture of what Israel was doing, of their unfaithfulness to God. But it's also a beautiful picture of what God does in response to that. The major themes, as we'll see on the screen from the book of Hosea, are we're seeing Israel's rebellion, the fact that they walked away from God time and time again. We see the severe consequences. They were just consequences, things that God did to not only punish them, but to protect and steer them back to him. There were consequences for Israel's sin. But then finally, we see God's relentless love, how he continued to pursue Israel. He continued to follow after her just as Hosea followed after his wife, Gomer. 
we see that God's love and His mercy are more powerful than sin. And as we look back to Israel's failures of faith, we see people just like us. We see people who know God's goodness and yet choose to disobey Him, choose to look for fulfillment in other places. And we know as we see this, that there is an opportunity for redemption. There is a God who loves us. There is a God who forgives us and will restore us. So as we read from this minor prophet from so many years ago, we can see a picture of ourselves and we can see a picture of the world around us in need of a Savior. This week we're in chapter 3 and we're talking about God's redeeming love. If you turn with me to Hosea 3, it's going to be up on the screen as well. We're going to read the whole chapter and it's going to take about two minutes. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and they love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without prince or king, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days." We're going to go through these verses and see just what's happening. It's a really short chapter. You'll definitely have time for coffee this morning. First of all, again, we see this picture of God's relentless love. He tells Hosea, go find your wife. Bring her back to you. Love her again. And that's just the way God loves us in spite of our sin, in spite of us wandering away from him. God compares Gomer, Hosea's wife, to Israel, who had turned away to other gods. He talks about raisin cakes, and that's kind of interesting. What's the first thing that you think of when you think of a raisin cake? Has anybody ever had a raisin cake? I thought of Fig Newtons. That's the closest thing I could come to a little cake made of some kind of fruit. Any Fig Newton fans? I haven't had one in a long time, but they're, they're pretty, pretty good. Raisin cakes are something that were part of worship. If we look at David when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back and they celebrated in Jerusalem, it said that he brought out raisin cakes for everyone. It was like a celebration kind of food, a festival food. And unfortunately for Israel, it was also a food that they would have used in worshiping these false idols. They would have brought something special, cake baked with fruit, and they would have presented it to those false idols as well. So we see it as a good thing in worshiping God, but we can also see it as a negative where Israel would be reminded of their unfaithfulness, their time that they were worshiping false idols. God said, you will give up those things and you're going to turn back away. Verse 2, it says, Hosea bought Gomer back for 15 silver shekels, a homer and a lethek, of barley. 
the usual price for buying back a slave? Any guesses? 30. 30 pieces of silver. Does that sound familiar to anybody? 30 pieces of silver was the price Judas was paid to betray Jesus. And if you were redeeming or buying back a slave, it was usually 30 pieces of silver. This is just one of the interesting things about God's Word. He gives us these very specific details. If someone was making all this up, you wouldn't be this specific. You would just say, he bought his wife back. But he tells us exactly how much. 15 silver shekels, and then a homer and a lethek. Anybody ever use a lethek? I've never used a lethek or a homer, but I had to do a little studying to find out more. A homer is just a little bit over six bushels. So one and a half homers would be nine bushels. How many of you have been apple picking? There's a lot of good apples in this part of New York. How many of you have been harvesting grapes? Anybody use a bushel container? Growing up in the shadow of New York City in New Jersey, I had no idea what a bushel was because I never held one. But a bushel is that basket that you would go out typically picking apples in. So nine of those, <clears throat> and a little bit more, full of barley, was how he made up the other half of this purchase price. As I read a number of commentaries and just trying to figure out, why, why is this? Why, isn't it, why didn't he just have 30 shekels of silver? Who was Homer? A prophet. Were prophets known to be wealthy? No, they were known to be people walking around in worn-out sandals and worn-out clothes. They didn't get money from the temple because they just had a message to proclaim from God. And God took care of them, but they were not wealthy. So the fact that Hosea has rounded up probably every coin in his house, and then he goes and he raids the pantry. What have I got in here? Got some Fig Newtons, got some leftover Twinkies. What else can I give this guy? All right, I've got some barley. Maybe he'll take the barley. Hosea is bargaining for his wife. He's giving everything he's got. And he's saying, I want her back. I'm going to empty my cupboards. I'm going to empty my purse. He didn't have a wallet because it wasn't paper money. I'm going to give him everything I've got. 15 pieces of silver, nine bushels of barley. Give me my wife back. I want her back. That's how important it was for Hosea. What did God do to buy you back? What did he give up? He gave up his only son. What's the most precious thing that God has? His son, Jesus Christ. And he gave him to pay the ransom, to redeem us, to buy us back from the slavery to sin. If we look at the book of Ruth, which we're not going to read that right now, we see a beautiful picture of redemption. How many, have, how many of you have heard that word, redemption? We sing about our Redeemer, we talk about redemption, and it, for me, it just was another word. It was another church word. Yeah, I'm redeemed, I'm saved, I'm righteous. We just kind of pile all these words in there, but they all have really specific meaning. To be redeemed means to be bought. It's paying the price for another person's life. In this case, his wife had been living with another man, so she became his property. 
In some cases, it was a slave who was redeemed. They were bought. Or if they saved up money, they could buy themselves back, buy their freedom. No longer be bound and a slave. In the book of Ruth, Naomi had left Israel. She had traveled into a foreign land with her husband, with her two sons. And while they were away, both sons got married. There was a famine in the land. They had to leave Israel. They left their home. They left their land behind. And they went in search of food, trying to survive. And if you know the beautiful story of Ruth, Naomi's husband dies. Both of the sons die, leaving widows. Three widows now. And Naomi says, just go. Both of these girls were not Israelites. They were from Moab. And he said, just go back to your family. Find a place where you can survive. I'm going to go back to Israel, to my homeland. And Ruth clings to her and says, I'm going to go with you. Your people are my people. So they go back to Israel and their land has been used by somebody else. They've been gone for many years and someone else has started using their property. And the only way to get it back was to redeem it, to pay the price, to buy it back. And that's what Boaz does. He's the kinsman redeemer. I'm going to take you to Leviticus, not to Ruth, but just to hear the rules for how to redeem someone, how to buy someone back. The first one is Leviticus 25.25. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. And then jumping ahead to verses 47 and 49. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor, and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan. Then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he can redeem himself. And then it goes on to give specifics about the price and the year of Jubilee. There's all kinds of good things in there to read. But the point of this is someone could be bought back. They could be saved from slavery. Even if they had enslaved themselves, they still had to pay to be free. And the way for that to happen was a kinsman, a near relative. They talk about a brother, an uncle, a cousin. Someone close to you could pay for you, pay for your property, the kinsmen did not have to do this. This wasn't a requirement. God didn't say, if anyone in your family is poor and in trouble, you have to bail them out. God said, if they want to, they can help you. So there's four specific things that were requirements here. First of all, he must be near of kin. He must be a relative, someone close to you. He must be able to redeem. He has to have the funds, the money to pay the redemption price. He has to be willing. He has to want to do this. No one can force him to do it. And then finally, the redemption was complete only when the full price was paid. Just saying, I've got the money, can you just let him go? Didn't cut it. You had to show up with the money and say, here you go. And now this transaction is complete. You have been 
redeemed. God promised a Messiah to the people of Israel, his chosen people. He said, I'm going to send a Savior, a Redeemer. Israel had been slaves in Egypt. They had 500 years or 400 years of slavery. They knew what it was to be enslaved. They knew what it was to be poor and for individuals to be indentured servants or slaves to someone else. They knew what that meant. And so to hear that a Messiah, a Savior was coming to redeem them was something important for them. He would pay a costly amount. God, as we just said, was willing to pay your ransom to redeem you from sin. His blood was the payment, his very life to be paid in full. But it wasn't just for Israel, it was for the whole world. That was the mystery of the good news, is that God wasn't just redeeming his chosen people, but he was going to make this available to anyone who would believe. Jesus fulfills all four of these requirements. First of all, Jesus is our near kinsman through the incarnation. Jesus became flesh. God sent his son in the likeness of flesh. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus was like us in every way. He became our brother. He became human, except he never sinned. While he was fully human, he was still fully God, and he never committed sin. He was the pure, perfect sacrifice that alone could pay that redemption price. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he made him like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus experienced life just like we do, like we do. He experienced the hurt of close friends turning their back on you. He experienced the disdain, the hatred from the religious rulers. He had his own family doubting who he was. Even after seeing the miracles, they said, we know you, we grew up with you, you're just Jesus. And it wasn't until after the resurrection that James, the brother of Jesus, said, it's really him. I finally believe. And he became a leader in the early church. But all through his ministry, his family didn't even believe him. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, becoming made in the likeness of men. That's in Philippians 2.7. And then finally in Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things, yet as we are, without sin. We have a recording of the temptation of Jesus. He was tempted physically, spiritually, with his pride. He was tempted in all areas, and he withstood those temptations. He never gave in and sinned. He became our near kinsman. He fulfills that requirement. Jesus also has the power to redeem us or the means. What is it that was needed? 
a perfect sacrifice. The sinless Son of God was the only payment for our sins that could be payment in full. All through those years, they had bringing rams and goats. They'd bring bringing sheep and doves if you didn't have enough money. And some life was taken and blood was spilled to pay for people's sins, to redeem them. But now here is the Messiah, the Son of God, and He alone had the power. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Philippians 3, 9-10, Being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death. When Jesus allowed himself to be crucified, to be nailed to the cross, he assumed our debt and his blood paid for your life, with his very life. The next requirement was a willingness. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. That's in Titus 2.14. And then in Mark 10.45, Jesus said, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but came to serve to give his life a ransom for many. Did you hear that? To give his life. Jesus was not murdered. He wasn't killed. He allowed himself to be nailed to the cross. He gave up the ghost, as the scripture says. He gave up his spirit when he was ready, as he proclaimed, it is finished. Jesus was a voluntary, sacrificial Obedient sacrifice for us. He made the payment. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This commandment I received from my Father. That's John 10, 17 to 18. Jesus was a willing Sacrifice. He willingly paid the redemption for us. And finally, the price had to be paid in full in order for the redemption to be complete. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16. That invitation remains open Jesus is the sinner's nearest kinsman. But it's your responsibility, it's my responsibility, just as Ruth laid at the feet of Boaz, for you to come to the feet of Jesus and say, cover me with your blood, cover me with your grace. I need you. We have to come humbly to God and recognize that we can do nothing on our own to save ourselves. 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him 
unto that day. Paul was saying, I believe my faith is firmly settled because God is keeping guard over me. My salvation is secure. Faith in the complete work of Jesus Christ is us accepting that redemption. Our salvation has been purchased at a great price. The personal cost to God and to Jesus was giving up his own son. For Jesus to take on the sins of the world, as we talked about last week, to be separated from his father because he couldn't look at his son covered in our sins. That sacrifice paid your ransom. That redeemed you and saved you, not only from sin, but from separation from God. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us are guilty of sinning, are guilty of not following God's complete law. No one can do that. Only Jesus did. And Scripture goes on to say that the wages, the payment for our sin is death. Complete separation from God. Our forgiveness is based on Jesus paying that ransom. As Liz read for us earlier in Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood. We've been redeemed through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Grace, some people have said, is God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus was not only willing to pay the price, but he paid it in full. And that redemption work not only frees us from sin, but the substitutionary death of Christ as a sacrifice means that we can have eternal life, that we can live with God forever. It's through his blood that the ransom payment is made. Only the death of Christ could satisfy that great debt and complete God's justice. God is always just. He is always perfect and pure in what he does. He doesn't punish out of anger or meanness. He punishes because there's right and there's wrong. And sin has to be paid for. Jesus did that. He redeemed you. He redeemed me. Back to Hosea, the last couple of verses. Verse 3 talks about some requirements for Gomer. You must now come live with me. You can't continue to be a whore. You can't stay with that guy or those guys that you were chasing after. You have to come live in my house. And some of the commentaries said that that meant that for that period of time, they had no physical contact. They were just there cohabitating, living in the house, and eventually restored. Hosea said, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to continue to remain faithful to you. And then the writer goes on to explain how Israel would return to worship God after giving up her kings and her rulers, giving up the worship of idols, giving up all the things that they were chasing after. We know as we read through the rest of the Old Testament that Israel was attacked again and again by her enemies, neighboring nations. And what did they did do? They came and they took the people captive. 
They no longer had a king of Israel, a king of Judah. They were no longer there under their rulers. That was all gone. The temple, the place where they would worship, where they had the ephod, that's talking about the, the dress of the high priest. All of those things were stripped away. And it was just them in a relationship with God. But God didn't leave them like that. He says, you're going to seek after David, King David. And that was Jesus. When we read the first chapter of Matthew, we see that Jesus' earthly mother, Mary, came through the line and lineage of King David. Jesus had the right to sit on the throne of David. And even through Joseph, Mary's husband, who wasn't blood-related to Jesus, but still his father in that patriarchal system, he was also from the line of David. They went to the city of David to be taxed. They went to Bethlehem to be counted. So they showed that Jesus had the right to sit on the throne of David, fulfilling the prophecies that there would always be a king on your throne. God said that to David. Of your kingdom, there will be no end. And that's when Jesus comes and returns and completes that prophecy to fulfill that. At the end of verse 5, it says, they will return to his goodness in the latter days. In Revelation chapter 21, we have a glimpse of that goodness, the final restoration of God's creation. You can turn with me or you can, I don't know if I put it on the screen. I did. Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 to 8. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. There's goodness. There's springs of living water. I will be his God and he will be my son and daughter. For those who have eternal life, God will complete the restoration of his creation. He will make things all new again. As we look at our earth and we pain for the things that are happening to it, as believers, we know that it's going to be restored. We know that it's not going to be totally destroyed, but that God will make things all new again. And we can look forward to that, those latter days, those glimpses of goodness. But there's also a dire warning here. Coming to church is a time to be encouraged, but it's also a time to be warned. We need to hear the good with the bad. If there was no sin, there would be no need for a Savior. If God just said, I love everyone, and all you have to do is smile and be happy, that would be it. But that's not a just God. He said there's payment. There's a penalty for sin. The one who conquers, the one who has eternal life, will have the heritage. 
but for the faithless, the cowardly, the detestable. And he goes on to list just some specific sins. It doesn't mean that only these people who have done these things, it means sinners who have not been redeemed. People whose Christ's blood has not covered. Their payment has not been made because they never accepted the redemption. They never said, free me. I want to be free. Their portion, their reward, is the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, the second death. That's eternal separation from God. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed to each person to die once, and after that comes the judgment. That's when the second death occurs, eternal death or separation. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who have accepted his redeeming gift of salvation, have eternal life instead of eternal death. Are you ready? If you're sitting here this morning with us in this room, if you're downstairs in our fellowship hall, if you're online, are you ready? Have you accepted Christ's sacrifice on your behalf? John 3.16 says God sent his son because he loved the world, but not everyone who, not everyone would believe. The next verse says those who have not believed do not have eternal life. Not everybody will go to heaven. And that's the most important thing you need to hear this morning. If you haven't already trusted him, you have to accept this gift. Just like Hosea buying back his wife, Jesus offered himself, his redeeming love, to buy you back from sin. To buy you back so that you wouldn't be eternally separated from God. If you have never done that, please come talk to me today. If you're watching online, call our church, contact me through the church, and let's talk. Because that's the most important thing that you need to do, is to know your God, to be restored in your relationship to Him, to be forgiven, to know His redeeming love. If you've already been redeemed, if you've already accepted Christ's payments, there are two important takeaways they're on the next slide. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What was that price that you were bought with? What was the redemption payment? Anybody? Jesus' blood. You no longer are a slave to sin, but you've been bought by another. Who owns you now? God does. Your sins were paid by Jesus. He blotted out your list of payments, list of sins. Romans 6, 17 to 19 says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. Instead of being a slave to sin, to just giving in to all of those sinful desires, God says you are now a slave, you're now captive to God's righteousness. Those are your new desires. That's what you want to do. 
obeying God's word, following the example of Jesus Christ. And the second thing, the first one is that we are no longer slaves to sin. The second one is that we were bought by God. We belong to him. The greatest commandment, as Jesus answered, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll follow my teachings. This is how we glorify God. We show the world, we show other people what he's like by living the way Jesus did. When someone wrongs you, you respond the way Jesus does, in love and forgiveness. When someone treats you poorly, do you respond as a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness? When someone cuts you off on the highway, what's your first response? It's usually not, God bless you, I'm glad you didn't hit me. And God says, show love, show forgiveness, show patience, because you have a new life. You're no longer a slave to sin. Mark's going to come and we're going to close in a song. As you think about this message and you think about God's redeeming love, think about how much he loves you, how much he was willing to pay. He was willing to pay it all so that we could be his sons and daughters. We could be part of his family and that we could be forgiven and free. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we could come together this morning, lift up the name of Jesus, praise our Father in heaven. I thank you, Lord, for this body of believers, for everyone that is here with us, not only being able to hear your word, but being able to apply it to our lives, to believe it and to do it. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us in this coming week to remember who we belong to. If we've trusted you as Savior, we are your sons, we are your daughters. We want to honor you in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions. And Lord, for those that don't know you, I pray that this morning they would take a step closer. They would recognize your great love for them and their great need for you. We pray to him who loves us, redeemed us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.